Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Our guest today is Rachel Beck. She's a talented author and a dear friend. She was born in India and adopted by a Jewish family in the United States. She's overcome so much in her life, and she's here today to tell us her story. I read your book. It's called Finding a Way When Life Changes Your Plans. That is so relevant, especially now. It's huge because if you don't adapt right now, Rena, I don't know if you're necessarily going to make it. If you don't evolve and adapt, to the current situation. I literally could not put your book down. I read it like in two days. When you pushed an empty stroller to go pick up an adopted child, you said you couldn't push the stroller back when that didn't come together. I was okay going. We had a one million chance situation where everything that could have possibly gone wrong went wrong when it fell through. I just literally, I physically couldn't get off the floor of the hotel room and my husband and had it pick me up. The next day, we got to leave. It was like a trauma coma, I guess, is the only way to describe it, going home. And then it was me walking into the house and hugging my dogs, having the empty nursery for a month that I couldn't walk back in there. I donated all the furniture. You were adopted by a Jewish family and went to a conservative Jewish school. Tell me about your upbringing. My parents still to this day keep a kosher home. A rabbi reached out to me and she wrote a story on me because her husband is a principal at a Salman Schechter. That was my favorite school experience ever. I did not have good experiences in public school. I loved Schechter. Even though I was the only colored person in the school, no one treated me any differently. I'm glad that you had a good experience. I went to a Jewish school, kindergarten through fifth grade, and then I switched in middle school and was very behind on what sixth, seventh, and eighth graders were doing. I was very sheltered, very surprised by things I saw, very picked on. I chose it because I wanted sports. (laughs) I didn't like school again until I went to college. 18 years ago, I was kicked out of synagogue because of the color of my skin. It was the first Rosh Hashanah after 9-11. The country was at the height of seeing brown people and not making good assumptions. It was really serious. I was there before the rest of my family was. It was one of those overflow situations. Everybody's got their restaurant tickets, you're in line. I got there first. Line of people. This man comes up to me, ended up being the president, and screamed at me in this lobby. You're not welcome. You're not Jewish. You look like a, you can guess what the word was. I'm not going to say it. I was in tears. And I was shocked. I was kicked out. They called the cops on me. My record's like clear. I'm not So the cop actually, she looked at me. She's a female. She was like, Rachel, have a nice day. And so my family came. You know, my mom was in tears. My father was very upset. They handled the situation. And that was a life-changing moment for me, Rena. When your own religion 
kicks you out. It took me seven years to step back in. Like even when I'm in synagogue now, when I go, if my family's with me, they're like, are you okay? And when I do the book tour, I did New York, I did Long Island, I did Jersey, and I did it the week of Hanukkah. And the subject was bringing light. You know, I talked about the light of Hanukkah. And I tell this story and I said, look, there were 75 people in that line who stood there and did nothing. I can only imagine how hard that must have been. My oldest son, first of all, I sent all three of my my older children to an Orthodox Jewish school. And part of the reason that we moved to Chicago is to be able to send them to a Jewish school because the one in Louisville didn't even exist anymore. I wanted to be able to give my children that education. I started sending my oldest son to an Orthodox Jewish school in pre-nursery. By fifth grade, I thought he'd be totally brainwashed. I thought, you know, you start him in pre-nursery they're just going to abide by the rules. He started questioning things and asking questions that were not encouraged. So he started rebelling. Needless to say, this was not the right fit. Now here's my problem. When you have a message of achdus and love every Jew, and you can't cater to my son who I've given you at pre-nursery, it's not love every Jew. I've even had people say things to me like, you'll be Orthodox when you stop wearing a wig and open-toed shoes. And I'm like, you know what? Orthodox isn't what you wear. It's how you treat people. Okay, back to the book. Your first one was a huge success, and I believe you're writing a second. What can we expect from the second, and how is it different from the first? I was a little more, I would say, I was reserved with the first one because I was very conscious of, well, first of all, I didn't have a publisher and editor. So now, like, I can write it without worrying. It's more that walls down when I'm writing, and it becomes free flow. It's blunt. It's very honest. I'm not sugarcoating anything in the second book at all. In your book, it states that your biological mother passed away just two days after having you. How did you process that? I don't know her name. I don't know anything about her. And that is really, really difficult because then this man who I think he was my biological father, he had me for a couple months, about five months, and then turned me over to the orphanage. I know his name. So when I'm in India around the orphanage, around that area where I was born, I'll drive by a cemetery, wonder if she's there. There's a very very deep spiritual connection with me with her and I read a book that changed my life I will not let her life her death be in vain I owe my life to three mothers you know the one who birthed me the one who took me in and then the mom who raised me these three women had me for a reason they had a conscious choice whether or not to have me in their life I'm donating part of the proceeds of the book back to the orphanage what did it feel like to go back to the orphanage oh my god I loved it (laughs) I love everything about it. It's awesome. I went back the first time in 2013, then went back in 2015. When my feet touched India, it was the most spiritual awakening moment for me. The first morning I woke up and I saw the children. It was coming home. It was falling in love. It was being a minority for the first time in my life, which was huge for me. Those kids are so incredible. And that's why I'm fighting for them every single day. My story is different from them. You know, I was adopted. They have so much love and joy in their life. It's huge, Rena. They light me up. Two of my most healing moments have come in India, which changed me forever. And I needed to have those moments. I'm grateful. They're my family. I went to Israel. I did one of those teen tours. So I did a whole summer. I was on a kibbutz for two weeks in the Golan Heights. I was doing my thing at the kibbutz. We all had our jobs. This Indian girl comes up to me and she says, hi. And I'm staring at her like, it was the first time I had met another Indian Jewish person. She said, would you like to come to our dinner? to my house for Shabbat dinner. I said, I would love, I sat, 
at the table had Shabbat with a whole Indian Jewish family. And it was life-changing for me because I sat at that Shabbat dinner and I can still see that like it was yesterday. I said to her, thank you so much for inviting me for your hospitality. She said, Rachel, you're always welcome here. You're not alone. It's just like there are other Indian Jews. When I'm in Israel or I'm in other countries internationally, I'm going to say this the right way. No one asked me what I am. Isn't that interesting? Same. No one asked me, but it's very eye-opening to me. I was in India and I was taking some Americans and some Europeans. There's always people volunteer at the orphanage. So when I'm there, I help them take them shopping. And one of the guys was from England. We were on a major road called Gandhi Road. And I take people to shop to support the local economy. And he looks left, he looks right. And he goes, I'm a minority for the first time in my life. And it was very profound. And he said, Rachel, is this what it's like for you every day in America? I said, I said, it is. And he's like, I think every person needs to experience that once. This is what it's like for the rest of the world. I didn't know that you could ask questions about your religion until I got older. You know, just ask us the question. I'm not kosher. I'm only reform. I'm not deeply, deeply religious. I'm proud to be Jewish. I'm proud of our culture. I'm proud of the values and the lessons. It's a constant evolving. <laughs> I want to lift the Jewish community up right now because that's what I'm trying to do on social media to end the stereotypes of what people think of us is not okay. I want people to know that we are giving loving people that tzedakah is huge to us that meets vote are huge to us that our lives are not about us and if that's the message i can get across on social media that's what i'm gonna do i love that it's really beautiful i asked the rabbi in judaism when someone dies you have shiva you have the whole process you have the burial within 24 hours what is the process when someone miscarries rabbi what do you do what do you do then i'm working there are two rabbis i know who actually have studied this and are working on this and they're trying to figure out a way because it's becoming more prevalent unfortunately in their congregations so they're becoming more conscious of it and trying to figure out a way how to do what how to help families greet a miscarriage because there's no shiva the day after i miscarried i had family who happened to be staying with us at the time and she's amazing i love my sister-in-law dearly she said rage let's go get a tree let's go plant a tree in, your, in the backyard let's do something and we did and it lasted for eight years then i I had a therapist who said in order to go through the grief process, you need to have some kind of ceremony and have a ceremony. And I did it. And it was so healing. I did it with family. I really want to know more about endometriosis because I feel like that is another one of those things like miscarriage that is not talked about. I was under, you know, doctor care. I was first diagnosed and it took me a long time to get diagnosed. They assumed the first doctor who diagnosed me when I was living in Boca, he automatically knew. And he's like, you probably had this for a while. It wasn't diagnosed. So that was 97. I was first diagnosed and then battled it for 20 years. About two and a half to three years ago, I did the hysterectomy. Yeah. Can you talk about what the hysterectomy did emotionally and physically? I had to get in touch with what I still feel like a woman. That's what came across my mind. And I learned, yes. I'm so a woman. I'm on estrogen therapy. I've had so many surgeries in my life for endometriosis, like, and I had help with the recovery after. So I had a surgery where I had to remove one of my ovaries. I donated my ovary, the science, to find a cure for endometriosis. For the people who haven't read your book, can you just talk about the beginning part of your story? I was adopted when I was 11 months old. I came to the States, landed at JFK, New York. They actually found out about me from two different people 
on the same day. And they said it was Bersha. The woman two doors down was involved with a Vietnamese baby airlift. I was in the newsletter saying there's a child who needs to be adopted in India. That night, they came home and sat down. And my dad said, oh, so they found out about me the same day. And they said it was Bruchette, meant to be. That's how they got me. They started the process. They worked with the founder of the orphanage. You know, my parents are who I was supposed to be with. How old were you when you found out you were adopted? And how did you find that out? Oh, I was young. (laughs) I think my mom said it was like three or two. And I was like, mommy, why are you white and I'm brown? It was, she said it was that simple. I love how innocent children are. Even today, my daughter was like, you know that mole you have that's a little bit raised? I have one like that too. I was like, I'm sorry. You're my daughter. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I uh, can't wait to see you in Chicago where we venture out to Kentucky. (laughs) That would be crazy. That interview was so amazing on so many levels. I cannot wait to hear what my daddy has to say. You have a young lady that has overcome tremendous adversity that came into this world. Her birth mom gave birth to her and died where she ended up with her father. She ended up in circumstance where she was left at an orphanage. You have a family that takes her on where she's, again, searching for her identity, searching for her relationship with God and relationship with other people. And yet she rises above. She shows that she can also adapt to change. This is what your father even was mentioning to you, that even with the business waning and all these issues and problems, that still you have to reinvent yourself. You still have to work. You still have to go on. You still have to be creative with your life. And you have to find other ways to make it out there. You're having to adapt right now because my son doesn't want you to record. Right. We're in the middle of watching Snowpiercer. And we've watched two or three episodes together. And it's very exciting. And we're trying to see the conclusion. But to me, working with you on this project is more important. This girl has also decided that she wants to dedicate a lot of time where she had a reunion with the orphanage and wants to help other people that have gone through her circumstances where she believes she's here for a reason, that she learned what it is to go through adoption. She's learned to go through the loss of being born and lose a parent. She was adopted by a faith that might not have been her own. I've heard this story before that people in other countries, especially in Europe and in, you know, in Israel where she's been as well, where people of different races and colors are looked at with a lot more compassion than sometimes in America. In America, sometimes we're so critical of what people look like and what they do and how much money they have that they classify them or stereotype them, as she would say. And you can't really get yourself out of that stereotype without people being a little bit more broad-minded and understanding that just because we have a different color skin, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love all of us. What did you think of that story that she told where she showed up to synagogue before her parents and she was told to get out? This was really quite shocking. But even the Jewish people who are supposed to be a guiding light for the whole world, unfortunately, is also human and also took this stereotype too literally. And we've even known some Jews, when it comes to kosher, where they fight over whose kosher is more kosher than someone else. And yet you have another movement, the Chabad Jews, where they want to welcome all the different factions of Jewish and practice as much as you can. And they want to show compassion and love and try to get them to do as much as they they can do. Your 
own great uncle, Marvin's brother, spent time with an orphanage. I can relate to a lot of these stories because the broad paintbrush of our family and our history, we have seen so many of these same stories occur. My father's mom died when he was only two years old and Seymour, I guess, was six. Abraham was not able to really, after suffering the loss of his wife, was not really able to take care of the two children. A relative took the baby in, which was Marvin, the two-year-old, and Seymour ended up in a orphanage for two or three years. Grandpa met Grandma Leah, and she then was able to rescue Marvin, and then eventually Seymour. Seymour had to see a psychologist to try to put this picture together, just like she did. A lot of times, you actually need professional help to sort out this crazy maze of what's happened in our early childhood, where it's just so hard to penetrate and understand what's happened to us. If you can find a way out of the maze, if you can work towards getting help to understand that not all of us uh, have an easy path, but that we all have that opportunity to find within ourselves the right answer of moving forward. If you're considering adoption, you can find the links for more details on the Better Call Daddy website. You can also find more details about Rachel's book. We all have our own unique map, which helps us understand ourselves and others. Increased self-awareness is key in maximizing your career and life. The UMAP assessment reveals your strengths, values, skills, and interests. There is also a UMAP youth assessment for kids. To get your personalized UMAP, go to myumap, that's Y-O-U dot com today. And make sure you use the code BCD, like better call daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.